Glad you guys are here this morning. And uh, we are continuing on in this summer series together, we believe. And um, I I just got a sense this past week of, uh, again, just reminded, we're taking time this summer to reflect on our doctrinal statement around the convictions we have, around the truth we believe, um, and, and what we anchor our lives in. And uh, at a conversation this past week, uh, just someone talking about celebrating differences. And, and I asked, so what does it mean? What does it mean that we celebrate differences? And, and hey, I'm, I am all about celebrating differences. Paul, our engineer over here, loves talking about things that, I, in fact, bore me to tears. But I love <laughs> that we get to celebrate our differences. But the question is, what, what is that criteria of those things we celebrate and, and so we're reflecting on the truths we believe, but simultaneously, there's truths that I believe, if, if I'm honest, that don't engage my heart to the degree that I'd love them to. And so we both want to engage our minds, but also awaken our hearts. And so we're spending this summer reflecting on some of those things. And, and the whiteboard has come out. Love the whiteboard. So, so we started with... The God we worship, that's where our summer started, and we, and we then went to the book we read, that God has chosen to reveal himself primarily through his word, written by many authors over many years, and we are anchoring our lives in a conviction that God revealed himself through this book. And then, in the telling of that story, We got to learn about the God who brought all of life into being. Someone said I should be a doctor because you can never quite recognize what I'm writing. But God brought things into being, the creator of creation. And then there was this beautiful image. Um, (laughs) Crying babies. We just love them. Just love them. It's a beautiful thing. God brought things into being, and then what happens? We began to see the sin we rationalize fractured God's God's established idea of what this relationship would be like. And then there was a Savior that was pointed to in Genesis 3. Oh, man, this is what happens. You got to prep the pens, right? You You got to think that we talked about the Messiah we follow that there was a promised Savior that was going to reconcile us to this God, and then we talked about the gospel we proclaim, that there is a beautiful message contained in this message of the cross. It is the gospel we proclaim. And so we saw Matthew 28. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations proclaiming this gospel. You're the man, Clayton. Let's find out if this pen, there's always a chance, or the backup backup. of the backup. The backup of the backup. (laughs) Gotta love it. That there is this beautiful, beautiful gospel we proclaim. But we saw last week that Jesus said, wait till the Spirit comes before you actually go and share this message that the Spirit is actually convicting the world of guilt. And so in our lives, we find ourselves in our journey, right? What do you call life 
prior to the cross, what is taking place? Well, that's evangelism. (laughs) What do you call life after the cross? That's called discipleship. So we see the gospel being called in Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so there's this life of a disciple that takes place where we begin following Jesus and we take our cues from the text and we begin growing in our relationship with other believers. We call that discipleship. And then There's this heart to invite others. The gospel we proclaim through the power of the Spirit, invite others into the hope of the gospel. What do you call it when people, when disciples get together, let's say on a Sunday or during the week, what do you call it when a bunch of these disciples get together? Man, church, (laughs) the church moves forward, right? The church is planted in a local community, some might say Oregon, and every once in a while the church gathers in a building like a gym, and we gather and we celebrate this gospel we proclaim, growing together, and then a heart for the sake of the world. But there's two ordinances that Jesus instructs his people to practice. When the church gathers, there's a lot of different things we do, but there's two mandates, two ordinances that are are critical to the life of the body. This morning, we get to talk about the symbols we observe. And so I just want to read the statement, but we're only going to focus on the second part because up at Camp Fairwood, we're going to develop more of our doctrine of the church. We're inviting a guy named Jed Haas to lead us in a couple sessions, and then our previous lead pastor, Eric Vanderplow, is going to preach on Sunday about the nature of the church, which I'm very excited about. But read with me. We believe the true church comprises, and don't read aloud, but read with me silently in your heart as I read this. We believe that the true church comprises all who have been justified by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. They are united by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, right? Through the power of the Spirit, of which Jesus, of which he is the head. The true church is manifest in local churches whose membership should be composed of only believers. And the Lord Jesus mandated two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which visibly and tangibly express the gospel. Though they are not the means of salvation when celebrated by the church in genuine faith, these ordinances confirm and nourish the believer. So our big idea this morning, two words. There are two words from the Reformation, visible words. That these are symbols that have deep meaning. They're not just mere symbols, but symbols that have profound meaning for our lives as we practice them. So pray with me as we dig in to the text this morning. God, you are always, always, always abundant in grace, abundant in kindness, we, we want to anchor our lives in the truth, and yet we want to be open to discussion and wrestle with the complexities of what it means to discover who you are and see this infinite gap that, that, that is, is, uh, is our hearts being awakened to the reality of this truth. So reveal yourself always, always for your glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. So you guys heard me say this last week. 
celebrating 12 years with Casey. Is that hard to believe? Getting old, guys. 12 years of marriage. And, and there's, a, there's a phrase that you hear at a wedding. Here's the phrase in the language I often use. I give you this ring as a sign and seal of our constant faith and abiding love in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so there's this ring that often gets put on, and with this ring, I thee wed. So, so, so is it not a marriage without this ring? Is somehow this symbol equivalent to marriage? Or, or is this a profound symbol that gets spoken and said with meaning and with language at a wedding ceremony that speaks to a beautiful relationship? So today, we're going to look at two of those symbols, not mere symbols, deep, profound, meaningful symbols, and we're going to start with baptism. And I don't know where you are in baptism. I don't know if, if maybe you grew up in a faith that practiced sprinkling as a baby, and you wonder, do I need to get baptized as an adult? Or maybe you professed faith, and you wonder, is baptism necessary for salvation? I mean, if, I don't, if it's not necessary for salvation, why should I be baptized? It may be your profession of faith was so long ago, you're like, it's been so long since I professed Jesus. I almost feel awkward getting baptized now. And then for the observer, maybe when you watch baptism, you're like, well, it's not me anymore getting baptized. What significance does this have for me? We're gonna try and tackle those as we dig into Colossians. So turn to Colossians with me, chapter two, and it's in your bulletin there. Colossians chapter two, Paul says this. And we're going to take them one at a time. We'll take baptism, and then we will dig into the Lord's Supper. And I hope here is the cue we're trying to write here. These are symbols that maybe we take for granted, and yet, in this journey of a community of disciples, there are two things that Jesus gave us. Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them. So here's what Paul says in Colossians 2 about how we get to cherish our conversion through baptism. He says this, See that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of the deity bodily dwells, dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is called the head of all rulers and authority. In him... Also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting, off, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful workings of God who raised him from the dead. And so there's this perspective that says, well, well the, the covenant prior in the Old Testament was circumcision for little boys, now in the new covenant... In the new covenant, baptism becomes this entry. And so it's the equivalent to circumcision. And so some might say, well, because circumcision took place early on in life, we too should accompany baptism early on because it's this new covenant. Colossians 2 helps clarify 
the power of what baptism means because Paul says this, in him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So something is taking place in life that is changing our hearts, not with hands, but something spiritual is being done. And then he says what? Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through what? Through faith. And so baptism becomes this incredible picture of cherishing our conversion of what takes place after faith as an expression of faith, being convinced that we have been buried with Christ and now we are raised to new life with him. Circumcision of the heart has taken place and now through a visible expression of water baptism, we are raised through, through, through this symbol as an expression of what's taken place in our hearts. So we get to cherish our conversion through that. And I know you guys love quotes. So I'm gonna read this quote for you. Because when we experience the power of that symbol, it's that one and done experience, right? But there's something beautiful as an observer who watches that symbol. You ever give a gift to someone? And someone says, oh, no, 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 don't give me that gift. What do you tell them? I can't, I can't accept that gift. What do you tell them? I usually tell them, you're robbing me of the joy of giving you this gift. You're robbing me of something. You're robbing me of the joy of participating in you with that gift. So baptism is this beautiful symbol that expresses being buried with Christ and raised to new life. But as an observer... <laughs> If you're wondering, man, it's been so long since I've been come to faith, should I really get baptized? You're actually robbing observers of the joy of seeing the gospel proclaimed through baptism. There's a, there's a, a statement. You guys ready for the quote? A long quote, but buckle up. Because I love what's being said here. The power of watching baptism take place in someone else's life, both for the person experiencing it but in the Westminster Larger Catechism, it says this, the needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism is to be performed by us all our life long. What do you mean performed by us all our life long? Especially in the time of temptation and when we are present at the administration of it to others. When I watch baptism administered to others by serious and thankful consideration of the nature of it and the ends for which Christ instituted it, the privileges and benefits conferred and sealed by and our solemn vow made therein by being humbled by our sinful devilement and falling short and walking contrary to the grace of baptism in our engagements, growing up to assurance of pardon of sin and all the other blessings sealed to us in that sacrament by drawing strength from the death and resurrection of Christ into whom we are baptized for the mortification of sin and quickening of grace by endeavoring to live by faith, to have our conversion in holiness and righteousness as those therein given upon the names of Christ and a walk in brotherly love and being baptized by the same spirit into one body. Long quote, I hope here's what you heard. There's this beautiful, memorable occasion that happens when I watch baptism of someone else and I get to experience Jesus' resurrection 
as I observe what's taking place in the water, not just for the person being baptized, because we're gonna get to experience a few baptisms up at Camp Fairwood. And if you're still on the fence about getting baptized, let me assure you, there is still time, because I'm greedy and love seeing the gospel proclaimed through baptism. But in baptism, one become many, there was also a second ordinance that Jesus gave us. Anybody wanna take a guess what it is? The Lord's Supper. So in baptism, one enters in the church family of many. Here's the problem of sitting in the front, right? This is the problem. You're just, it's like the spit zone here. And I was told, you're lucky, I can't. What's the, what's the line, Clayton? I can't cross the orange line. Is that right? Otherwise, there'll be feedback. Baptism, one becomes many. What happens in the Lord's Supper? Many become one. Here's the text. It comes from 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. And before we read it, just like we did with baptism, I just want to pause and see the seriousness of it. Because sometimes there's a flippancy to it, at least for me, right? And that's why we see it pressed. Don't take this in, in, uh, in a lack of seriousness. There's a forgetfulness that I have in my life that I need to be reminded. But even more than that, back in the time of the Reformation, does anybody, does anybody know the name Bloody Mary? Does that name mean anything to anybody? People got killed over their perspective of the Lord's Supper. Here's a guy named John Bradford, one of about 300, I believe, around this time, imprisoned in the Tower of Legend for alleged crimes against Queen Mary, burned at the stake, July 1555. Here's what he says. The chief thing of which I am condemned for as a heretic is because I deny the sacrament of the altar, which is not Christ's supper, but a plain perversion as the papists now use it, to be a real, natural, and corporal expression of the presence of Christ's body and blood under the forms of bread and wine. That is because I deny transubstantiation, which is the darling of the devil and the daughter and her heir to the Antichrist religion. About 500 years ago, people burned at the stake for the position they took on something we get to freely talk about here. And so for me, the Lord's Supper, there's a seriousness to it that I was reminded. Again, you guys know this, right? Whatever I'm afflicted with, I just try and afflict you with that following Sunday. Because there's a superficiality that we come to this at times with. And there's a forgetfulness that we have of the profound reality of what this symbol is pointing us to. And then there's a temptation. There's so many other gods that are pursuing my time, treasure, and talent. That money, material possessions, prestige, the comforts, oh, I just want a little bit of comfort. Can I just watch, binge watch some Netflix for a little bit? Feels like it's not often in the licentiousness of life that I forget the goodness of the gospel. It's in the apple pie and Netflix that lull me to sleep. And I need the Lord's Supper to be reminded of the profound reality. I need to be refreshed and rehearse the gospel. So here's what he says. In 1 Corinthians 11, and I find this fascinating, right? In Corinthians, Paul is just blasting these guys. 
If you read, so often we read the nice words in verse 23. You guys ever gone up to verse 17? I'm gonna read verse 17 just to give us a little context. Stuff, man, over the years, I think just people are people, right? We wrestle with the same stuff. These guys are getting drunk on communion. This is what he says. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. That never happens with us, does it? Never happens with the American church. We're just a flawless group of followers of Jesus growing together. I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it is in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat. Well, what are they doing? For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk in communion. What? Do you not have houses to eat in and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. But then he says these words about the power of this symbol. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Right? In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, And drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And he says, this is my body and this is my blood. So if it's not the actual body and actual physical blood of Jesus, what is he saying? What what is the positive meaning of this is my body? What is he saying? And we see it there. He says... Do this in remembrance of me, for whenever you drink this cup, what? What's taking place? Whenever we sit here, whatever the the container is, when we do this, what's he saying? What's the word he chooses? We proclaim. There is a meaningful heart posture we take whenever we sit and drink and eat this stuff. Through faith, we've been baptized, and now... As a reflection of our faith, we continue right in the cup. We proclaim. What are we proclaiming? What are we proclaiming? Man, the death and resurrection. We are rehearsing the gospel every single time we sit around and take communion. We're proclaiming that 2,000 years ago, we are convinced of a truth and a reality that shakes this world to its core. That, that, that my differences that I want to celebrate, but what does that usually mean? Usually means I want to play God and I want to determine how I ought to live and how I ought best make choices. Instead, communion reminds me of a profound reality that I proclaim that I am convinced Jesus rose from the dead. And he says, do this in what? Remembrance of me. So we're proclaiming this reality. What exactly are we remembering? Turn over to Luke. It's not in the outline, but I was struck by this. You know, every once in a while, something hits me on a Saturday night. (laughs) He says, do this in remembrance of me. Luke 22, 16 to 18. 
For I tell you, I will not eat until, here in, in verse 14, and when the hour came, he reclined a table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I will tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom. And he took the cup and he had given thanks, take this, divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So what are we remembering? We're proclaiming this reality. What are we remembering? I can't help but think, sitting around the table, we're remembering this table fellowship of laughing, smiling, this fellowship with Jesus. We're remembering that there was a guy named Judas who betrayed Jesus, and it wasn't lost on Jesus that that was going to happen, that it was actually ordained. Jesus was fully aware. What are we remembering? We're remembering this idea that we're giving thanks to the God who ordained this whole process. What are, we, what are we remembering? Remembering that his body broken, given willingly as a sacrifice. What are we remembering? His shed blood so that I might live through him. What am I remembering I think this, verse 18, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. That I'm remembering that there is a promise of newness in the kingdom. And these memories wash over us every time we sit and eat and drink this cup. And so there's something special about communion, right? Did you hear it? We're looking back on what was done. But there's also a beautiful story of looking forward to what's to come. What does he say in 1 Corinthians 11? For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death when? Until he comes. And so the beautiful rehearsing of the gospel and then the anticipation of a full feast. That we get a taste of what is to come every time. And you go, how is this a taste of what's to come? There's a little cup of juice and a cracker. How in the world does this anticipate a feast? I hope in the same way of magnitude that this just speaks of something far greater, that this is just a taste of what's to come. I want to read one more. <laughs> one, you guys love these quotes, right? Wouldn't it be great if they were on the, on the screen? Back in the auditorium soon. It's like the anticipation, waiting for the feast. But there's this quote that I, I think speaks to this anticipation. How, how, what's the posture we usually take when we take communion? He says it in verse 27 and 28. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of our Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. So, so what does that usually look like? What's the posture we usually take when we do communion? Fairly solemn, fairly subdued. Why? What are we trying to accomplish? We're trying to honor verse 27 and 28. We're trying to honor reflecting on what's going on in our life. But I love this quote. 
by a guy named Russell Moore. He says this, often the Lord's Supper services are characterized by a funeral, funeral atmosphere, complete with somber, droning organ music as the ministers or deacons distribute the elements of the congregation. The congregation is sometimes led to believe, if for no other reason than the omission of the omission of the pastoral teaching, that the point of the meal is to screw up one's face and to try and feel sorry for Jesus. This is often accompanied by a psychological attempt to mediate on the physical pain of Jesus' sufferings, an emphasis that is markedly understated in the biblical text itself. In our attempt to reflect and feel the weight, it turns into this individualistic posture rather than simultaneously being an incredible anticipation of the new creation that is yet to come, that we collectively celebrate the Lord's work and collectively anticipate his coming. And so today, no less, sometimes it's hard for us to put those two ideas together, that seriousness and joy can happen simultaneously. I was just on the phone with someone whose father is passing away, and you could feel it in the tone of their voice. There's an anticipation that their father is going to meet Jesus in the next 24 hours, and there is a seriousness and there is a joy happening simultaneously as they spoke about their father. In communion, there is a seriousness to what is taking place, and yet simultaneously, there is a joy that we anticipate. So as we take communion today, Here's my hope, that yes, we reflect on the seriousness of this sacrifice, and simultaneously, we rejoice with inexpressible joy at the anticipation of a new heavens and a new earth as we await our coming Messiah. Pray with me. God, you're so good. Thank you for who you are, your work in our lives. We never want to diminish the power of baptism and the work being done. If we've yet to be baptized, convict us that this is a natural and beautiful expression, and yet meet us in our doubts and questions wherever we might find ourselves, knowing it is not necessary to spend eternity with you, and may we never neglect this beautiful, beautiful symbol taken in seriousness and joy that we celebrate the work you've done and we rehearse the gospel every time we do this and we anticipate with eager expectation your return. Thank you, Jesus, always for your glory, we pray. Amen.